We are wrapping up this pillar series. It's been one of my favorite series that we've been in because we are talking about some of the foundations of what we kind of hold on to here. And for a lot of you, it's kind of ask, being able to ask questions collectively of stuff that you've seen churches do um, and ask the question of why we do those things. And we talked about people uh, the first week, which is the idea of community. It's why it's so important. We think people need to be connected in small groups and classes and getting people connected. Uh, we don't want people to feel isolated. Nobody's meant to be isolated in life. Uh, what's crazy is you can be in a room this, you know, it's not a big room, but a room with this many people, a couple hundred people, and you can still feel completely alone. And we don't want you to feel like that. And so we talked about people, uh, and then we talked about voice, which is worship. For a lot of people, worship is kind of a weird thing. And, and so we kind of talked about why we do that. And then the third week, we kind of switched gears and talked about breath, which is the idea of how close God is to us and the belief that God is in everything and everywhere. Um, and then we talked about water last week, which is baptism. And you guys may or may not know this. If you didn't know, we had six people uh, that chose to get baptized in our second service, which was awesome. What was even cooler was that was our 302nd baptism uh, that we've had here at Journey. And so in 10 short years, we've baptized over 300 people. Uh, I was talking to some other church leaders, and it's not a competition or whatever. I mean, some of these churches have been around for 50 or 60 years and still haven't baptized over 300 people. And yet in 10 short years, many of you guys have made that choice. And so we're incredibly excited about that and what God's going to do in the future. And then today we are ending by talking about bread, and I'll explain what I mean by that uh, as we kind of get through it. Now, one of my favorite things to do, and I don't know about you guys, is to eat. Okay, um, and many of you are like, you didn't need to tell us, we see you. And so, uh, but I do, I love to eat. Uh, I love to go out to eat. Going out to eat is one of my favorite things. Now, anybody that knows me and is a friend with me also knows that I'm a food snob. All right, so when I say go out to eat, I'm not talking about Applebee's, no matter how catchy that song you think it is, okay? I, I, you're not going to catch me there, all right? Um, but, but I am a food snob. I love to go out to eat. I love to try new restaurants. Uh, many of my friends, like I'm the guy they text if they're like, hey, we want to go to a new restaurant because I just love to try new foods. I, you know, um, I love to share a meal with friends. I love going out with my close friends. I love going out with, with people that, that I barely know sometimes and getting to know people. And to me, sitting around a table and kind of talking and experiencing uh, that together is, is a great thing. I love to have meals with my family. Uh, I love barbecue. I love barbecue. I love to make barbecue. I love to eat barbecue. Um, and, and so I just love food. I love everything about getting people together and sharing a meal together. Now, one of the things that we do here at Journey or any church that maybe you've been a part of um, is we do this thing in the middle of the service and we call it a couple different things. Maybe you call it the Lord's Supper. Uh, maybe you call it communion. Maybe you call it the Eucharist and we'll talk about what that means. Um, but the Lord's Supper, you know, it's kind of one of those things that's like, you know, when you think supper, you think like a meal and we give you like a little like tasteless wafer and like a shot of juice. And you're like, here's your dinner, you know? Uh, it's this weird thing. And so why do we do this? What's the importance of it? And, and what does this all mean? So we're gonna talk through a lot of that today and hopefully answer some of those questions. And more importantly, why it's so important for us to do this and the idea of breaking bread together. Now, when I grew up, I grew up in church. And so the church that I went to, uh, communion was a little different than we do it around here. And so the way it worked was they had these trays, these golden trays. You guys ever have been a part of church? These golden trays. And so they had, you know, they had the, the tray that had the crackers in it. And it was like these little, depending on what church you went to, it was either broken up like crackers or there were like these little like 
the best way to describe them is like chiclets, like little chiclet crackers, okay? Flavorless, tasteless, whatever. And so we'd have those. And so what they would do is they would pass these plates. And the first place you got passed was the one that had the crackers in it. And it was always on a little white doily. Remember those things, the white doilies? And then they'd have the crackers on it. And then they'd pass another tray uh, that had been covered and they usually stacked them tall. And in this tray, there were little bitty individual plastic cups of juice, okay? And so you'd pass those down the thing and you'd have people at the beginning would pray over it. And then the deacons or elders and heaven forbid a woman ever do it. But you know, uh, that's true, although it's totally fine. And so for women to do it, as most things men. And so we're going to get through there. All right. And so, um, so we had these things and we did this. Now, one of the perks for me was my parents were really involved in church. My dad was an elder in the church. And, uh, so as a kid, we had kids church like we have now, because the reality is, and I know some churches bring the kids in here and that's fine and whatever, but the reality is the stuff that we're going to talk about and the length we're going to talk about those things, it's always not the best environment for kids. So we created services as they did for kids. Now, we just like the church I grew up in, we offer communion for kids as well, if they want to take communion and be a part of this thing. And we'll talk through all that. But one of the things about communion that the church I grew up with is they only gave the kids church one tray of each. So in between services, because there was two services, you'd have to take the trays down to the communion room and the ladies and guys down there would have to refill them and bring them back up. So we always volunteered to be the kids because A, it got us out of church. Uh, B, the best perk was nobody was in that room when we'd take it back. So all the little cups of juice that nobody had drank, we'd do them like little shots of grape juice, you know? <laughs> and so like, you know, you were hoping that week in kids' church there were no kids because that meant more juice for you, right? And, and so um, me and my buddy Phil, and me and Phil have a lot of stories growing up together that I can't tell you. And so, but one of those, one, we'd always volunteer. And one Sunday we got to go do it. So we go down to this little communion room and, you know, sitting right there. And and in our minds, we weren't smart kids. Um, We thought we were at the second service, but we were at the first service. Okay, this is an important detail here in a second. And so we saw a stack 10 high of the communion things stacked high. And in our mind, we're like, oh, it's second service. They've already done communion. They don't need those. (laughs) So free grape juice for us. And we proceeded to drink almost every single cup of grape juice in those 10 trays, only to get back to kids' church and have the scary realization, it's only first service. Second service, this is a true story. (laughs) The guy goes to take the lid, the guy leading the communion, take the lid off of the stack of things, and there ain't no juice. (laughs) It's all gone. I got in so much trouble, um, and, and fortunately, there were still some in the, in the back that they brought up or whatever, but I, I remember that. Um, so that was how I did communion growing up. Maybe if you grew up Catholic, uh, you guys, if you grew up Catholic, you did it a little differently. You, you would go down to the front. There was a part of the service that'd call you down to the front, and the priest would literally serve you, or the priest assistants would serve you. They'd take the wafer and stick it on your tongue, and you could drink from the cup if you wanted to or, or not. Um, they actually, in the Catholic Church, there's a word transubstantiation. I don't know if you ever heard of that word. It's literally where they actually believe that the, the juice and the bread becomes uh, the body of Christ, and, and so there's this process in that. And ironically, just like me as a kid that thought all that grape juice should be drank that was left over, uh, in the end of their services, the priest has to drink all of the, juice, the wine um, because you don't want to waste the body of Christ. And, and so there's this process there. And if you guys have been that, if you've ever been to a Catholic wedding, if you've never been to a Catholic church, uh, let's just be honest, full mass Catholic weddings, 
we're going to be there for a while, right? And, and so you might have been a part of that even if you weren't grew up Catholic. You go down front, you take the communion. Here at Journey, we did things a little different at the beginning. We were trying to figure out what to do. So we started the church plant, so we were in the school. There's only about 50 of us at the time, at the beginning. And so we did it a little different style. We did a style called intinction. And, and so this is a word you don't care about, but intinction, there's all these different styles of communion. Intinction is literally where you actually dip the bread into the juice, okay? And, and so maybe you're familiar with that. And, and there's some issues with that, and we'll talk about those here in a second, but that was the style. You'd literally walk up, and you guys, if you've been here pre-COVID, remember there were tables all around the room, and there was a loaf of bread, and you'd take some bread, and you'd dip it in the juice, and then you'd partake whenever you were ready. Now, early on at Journey, we had this thing where we'd allow volunteers to bring in the communion, because there wasn't very many of us, and so one loaf of bread and a, you know, a thing of juice would, would cover the whole service. So we had volunteers that would bring it in, and I remember pretty early on, probably like three or four months in, uh, somebody came up to me, and they were like, communion was really good today. And I was like, yeah, it's always good. You know, okay, maybe they brought the name brand grape juice this week. I don't know. And so... Uh, so we go in, and so I go to take communion, and I take my bread, and I dip it in the juice, and I put it in my mouth, and I'm like, yeah, that is pretty good, because it was wine. Uh, <laughs> they, had, they had brought wine, which isn't a big deal, obviously, we don't think so, but, but it was just one of those funny moments where we're like, yeah, it's a lot better than Welch's grape juice, for sure. <laughs> and so, uh, so we did that, or the weird thing about Antiquia, many of you guys complained about this, we had, you remember floaters? Yeah, you do, exactly, I was going to say floaters. We would have people write us emails and say, this week I took communion and there were floaters in it. And I'm like, what is a floater? It's where when you dip the bread, pieces of the bread would fall off of it into the juice and all of a sudden it gets gross, you know? Uh, we had a guy one week that I got an email about, true, I shouldn't say true story, my staff makes fun of me, but this really did happen. Um, we were doing communion, and of course we dip it. He'd never been before, and I guess maybe he grew up Catholic, so there's a station right here in the front and he goes up and he takes his bread and then he just takes the cup and just... <laughs> So that communion station was done for the day. And uh, so, yeah, so all kinds of weird things about communion, depending on how you grew up. So then COVID hit, right? And COVID changed a lot of things. COVID changed us standing in a long line and everybody touching the bread and all that stuff. So now we do these little, little prepackaged, and almost every church in America is doing these prepackaged little cups and the little wafer on top. Now, the reason I tell you all that is to say this. What you use to do it doesn't actually matter. It just doesn't. There's all different styles of way and do it. In fact, some people believe if you study the early church that most of the early church, they, they were indentured servants or they were servants or they worked for other people or they had to till the land or they had jobs. Like they, they were not the prominent people in their community. These were, these were hard workers. And so many of the times we believe that when they would gather together on the first day of the week, that they had to go to work after that. And so what often happened is they would just get together and often just have a meal together. And whatever was available was available. And it may not have always been the unleavened bread and the wine or whatever it is. And, and so it really doesn't matter. But, but what does matter is what it represents. And that's the part where I think a lot of people get confused on what it actually truly represents and why it's so important. So a little backstory into where communion kind of got started. Um, and we're going to look at Matthew chapter 21. We're just going to walk through it real quick. We'll talk more about it here in a few weeks with Easter coming up. And so what happens is Jesus is in his ministry and things are going really well. And he's about to go to Jerusalem. The problem with Jesus going to Jerusalem at this point in the story is that we know that once he goes to Jerusalem, he will not leave Jerusalem, that this is the end. And he knows that. Nobody else really does. But reading the story, we kind of know that. But things are coming to the end. And in Matthew chapter 21, we see there's like this triumphal entry. And that's where we get like Palm Sunday from and all this stuff. And so everybody's riding high because it's almost like Jesus is a celebrity as he's coming into Jerusalem. But the problem is there's been some things set in motion and some things that are about to be set in motion that can't and won't be undone. 
And actually, after Matthew chapter 21, this triumphal entry, if you've ever read 21 through 26, roughly, Jesus tells some of his most interesting kind of ideas and parables and stories about life and humanity and how we relate to God and all that. And it's a fascinating read if you get the time. But, but it's also a little chaotic because they have this like triumphal entry and there's all this stuff that's going to happen really fast. And then as we're going to see after this moment we see in Scripture, there's going to be a whole lot of other things that happen. But, but there's this part in the story where it's around the Passover, and the Passover is this meal that gets established a long time ago through Moses. And essentially when God hears the cries of his people, as we talked about a few weeks ago, he, he frees them, but there's all these things that have to happen. And the Passover meal is a celebration of one of the last things that happened in order for the people to get passed over and the firstborn to be passed over in order for the people to be set free. And so the Jewish people, they, they took this time every year and they celebrated that and this moment in their history. And so so this is what's kind of going on. And so in Matthew chapter 26, it reads like this. On the first day of the festival of the unleavened bread, so they did use unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So this is like a big deal to them. This is, this is, this is like their, like, it's not a good comparison, but like their Thanksgiving. Like this is something they look forward to. This is a big part of their culture and their identity. He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. Now he knew this. This is the first they're hearing of it. And they were very sad and began to say to him to one another after, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who had betrayed him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi, which is a way of saying teacher. You have said so, Jesus answered. And while they were eating, and here's the moment, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out from many of the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine now on, until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So Jesus knows what's about to happen. And so he's taking this moment and he's doing this thing. And let's just be honest, it's a little bit weird. It really is. In fact, you can reply to the younger's writings that he writes later. Um, Early Romans, this is not made up, they thought Christians were like vampires because we like got obsessed with like eating and drinking blood, right? And eating flesh, which is just weird, right? But, but what Jesus is doing is he, he's portraying a picture of something that's really important that he knows is about to happen, that they're still a little bit confused on. And he's taking this moment and he's setting a picture, a scene that these people can remember and participate in, not only in this moment, but what is to come. And in fact, in Luke chapter 22, Luke goes a little bit further with this. And in verse 19, he says this, same story, same setting, but he just adds one more line. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then what happens next happens really fast. Right after this meal, there's going to be this moment in the garden. And then Jesus is going to be betrayed. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be unjustly tried. He's going to be abandoned by those very men that were in that room with him. He's going to be beaten, crucified, resurrected. Then he's going to be reunited with those who betrayed him and abandoned him 
all in a short period of time. Now, what's interesting about this moment for me and what Jesus does and the importance of this moment is this. So everything leading up to this dinner had kind of been chaotic. And then there's like this moment where Jesus has this like intimate moment with his guys. And he's like, look, some stuff's about to happen. Some things are going to happen that you're not going to fully understand. But all I want to do is just take this moment. And I want to break the bread and I want to drink the wine. And I want us to remember this moment and the importance of it and what it means. And then after this moment, it gets chaotic again. And I was reading this this week and, and it just struck me like this idea that like, it's like in the midst of all of this chaos, there's like this brief moment of like peace. And it got me thinking about us. Like, so some of you in this room, like this week, let's just be honest, it was chaotic, right? Busy schedules, going from here to there, bad news, broken relationships, argument with your wife, argument with your husband, argument with your kids, right? Some of us, we're in a season right now where it's just not a good season. It's hard. It's rough. There's a lot of things happening that are outside of our control. And so it's tough. Diagnosis, sickness, pain, heartache, loss. And then you come in here and every week we have this time where we're together and we sing songs and we listen to some guy talk for a little while. But then there's this moment in the middle where we, we take a piece of bread. That's what we call it. I don't know if it is or not, but we take this thing they give us and some juice and we have this moment that connects to something that happened over 2,000 years ago that millions and millions and millions of people across the planet today will also participate in. And it's like this moment of peace. And then you know what happens next? Chaos, right? The unknown. Nobody knows what they're going to walk into this week. The disciples had no idea what was about to happen. And no matter what we have faced, no matter what we will face, it's like this moment where Jesus is like, okay, broken body, poured blood. Remember this. And here's what we learn from the rest of the scriptures, that this is really important to the early church. In fact, we, we see it over and over again. This mention is not only in Acts, but in Paul's writings later, this remembrance of when they get together, especially in Corinthians, he talks about this, that we do this in remembrance. We do this when we get together. This is a part of our identity to do this together because for them, what they understood is that what Jesus did, it changes things for everyone and everything, that something has, has shifted in the very makeup of the universe and it's all connected to what he's about to do in this moment. That he's leading everyone and everything out of violence and sin and death and into something else. And for these people individually and for us, it's even bigger than that. Because not only is this thing shifted in the fabric of the universe, but it shifted in us. And it's offered us hope and peace in a time where we didn't have hope and peace. And so Paul talking about this later, he, he's talking about this idea and he's saying, so, so when we remember what Christ has done, what we should do is we should be thankful for it. Now, the Greek word that we, we use that means um, good gift, <clears throat> it's a Greek word and, and it's actually a word and it's eukarazima. 
And I said that really bad, so if my Greek professor is watching, it's been a while, okay? So uh, he said this really bad, but essentially that word, what it translates to in the Latin and then into English is the word Eucharist. Eucharist literally is translated the good gift, which is the idea that when we come together and we participate in communion, Lord's Supper, Eucharist, we're participating in the ongoing of the good gift. We're remembering the good gift, that Jesus is God's good gift to the world. And that on the cross, Jesus' body is broken and poured out for the healing of the world. So a couple thoughts that come from that. And here's the first one. We've already talked about it. See, the first thought is this, is that when we take communion and we take that moment, because I think for so many of us, and maybe it's our fault, it's almost like this brief moment in the service and people are like, why are we even doing that? What's the significance of it? But if you take it like this and you think about this, so you're in this moment where life has been tough, this week has been tough, this season of life has been tough, and you get this moment where you get to identify and connect to something that has been bringing peace and hope to people for 2,000 years. And you have this moment where with all of the chaos that was and all of the chaos that will be, you have this peaceful moment. Paul writes this because Paul's a man that experienced a lot. And here's what he says. He says, we are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. Now, why does he say this? Why does he say, okay, there's all these bad things that are happening around us and to us, but it's not the end of us. Because for Paul, if anybody should be bitter about some of the circumstances, it should be him. But he doesn't complain and he doesn't lose hope. And here's why. He goes on to say, he says, we always carry around with us in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Now, now, what is he saying about that? Why, why does that mean? So, so in some ways, what happens in Eucharist, when we remember what Jesus went through, when we remember all of the pain and suffering that he goes through in that cross, what it reminds us of is that we aren't the first to experience pain and we won't be the last and we're not alone. That whatever we're going through, he also went through. That his broken body and poured out blood, then in all of the chaos, there's a moment, a center moment where we hold on to the hope that we have in that, that you're not alone in what you're experiencing and that he's been through it himself. So the first thing is in our pain and in our hurt and our suffering to remember that Christ understands that he's there. He gets it. I mean, we literally take something every week that we represents the pain and the heartache of what he went through. The second thing is this, is the idea of that it brings us together. So in Jerusalem, uh, there's a temple. So where Jesus is going to, there's a temple. And in the temple system, uh, there's this kind of weird system that they believed in. But essentially, you have the temple that's in the middle of this area. And in the center of the temple itself, there's a thing called the Holy of Holies. And only one person could go into the Holy of Holies. And they actually tie a rope around this person because it was so holy that if God gets mad, he might just smite the person. And they got to pull him out by the rope. All right? Kind of a weird thing, but it's true. And so they believe this. Now, outside of this area, there's another area where the priests were allowed to go. And then outside of that area, there's another area where the Jews were allowed to go. 
And then outside of that area, there was another area where the Gentiles and the non-Jewish worshipers, if they wanted to connect to God, could go. And in between all of those, wall, those areas were walls. There were barriers. There were things that separated the people, even in their understanding of God, but also in their understanding of each other. You're not good enough to go into this area. You're not like me, so you stay in this area. So it creates this system where, where people are trying to figure this out, but there's all these things. And like even in the Gentile, like if you, you was told that you couldn't even go into the Jewish area because if you went in the Jewish area, they'd kill you. And so there's all these physical barriers between people trying to seek God and community with each other. And listen to what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter two. For he himself is our peace who has made two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Now, you may have read that before and thought he was talking about something else. Somebody in the first century reading this, you know what they think of? The physical walls that have separated the people. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself, ready? One new humanity out of the two must making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Here's what he's saying. There were people separated because they thought their differences separated them and the belief that God kind of sorted them out. And in the new humanity, none of that exists. See, the reality is I've been doing this for 20 years You might think that you're special and different. You're not. We're all pretty much the same. We all have the same needs, wants, desires, phones that go off. (laughs) What's fascinating is when we take communion... And that's another word that we use for what we're about to do here in a few minutes is Eucharist communion. It comes from the Latin, which means communo, which I guess you're educated people, you can guess where we would get the word community, communion. But it literally translates sharing in the common need. That we all have the same needs. Writer Anne Lamont, one of her favorite writings, says the two most powerful words in the world are me too. Me too, when you're struggling, when you're hurting, wounded, limping, doubting, questioning, barely hanging on, moments away from another relapse and someone can identify with you. Someone knows the temptations that are at your door. Someone has felt the pain that you're feeling. When someone can look you into the eyes and say, me too, and actually mean it, it can save you. When you aren't judged or lectured or looked down upon, but someone demonstrates that they get it that they know what it's like, that you aren't alone, that's me too. And when we take communion together, it's like this moment where we're acknowledging together, yeah, me too. The writer also says that Jesus has made peace. And this is fascinating because we all want peace. We say we want peace, but I I do think in our deep desires, we all want peace. And in the book of Colossians, Paul writes that on the cross through the blood of Jesus, that God is reconciling, and ready for this, all things to himself. All things. 
that God has made peace with the world through the Eucharist, the good gift of Jesus, which means that God has made peace with you. See, for a lot of us, our struggle is within ourselves, that we don't think that peace can be made because of the choices we've made, choices made for us, things we believe about ourselves. We don't believe that peace has been made. But in Eucharist, the idea is that in Jesus' body and blood, that everything, including you, has been reconciled to God. That's why Paul invites us into a new humanity, where the things that used to divide us no longer matter or even possibly exist where peace has been made, where people who had previously found themselves on opposite sides of the wall, those walls have been destroyed. How about this one? Where people who previously thought they had nothing in common discover the only thing they have now in common is the one thing that matters the most. In this new humanity, you hear perspectives you wouldn't normally have given time to hear. You learn to walk in other people's shoes, to see the world maybe the way that they see it. You find out that the judgments you previously had made about groups of people or the kind of men or kind of women or those type of kids aren't as important as they once were. You learn that your labels for different people groups are insufficient because we all have the same need. And the walls have come down that separate us and that peace has been made. A church is the new humanity on display. A church, all a church is, is a place where peace has been made. That peace has been made for us. Peace has been made with us. Which leads to the other question, that if peace has been made with us and for us, is there anybody that you need to make peace with? I mean, it seems a little unfair that all this peace has been handed to us and made with us, and we're a gathering of people who understand what peace is because peace has been given to us. And yet we still think it's okay to hold hostilities against other people. Eucharist reminds us what is possible. See, you may say, well, it's not possible for me to make peace with this person because of what they've done or what they've said or the things that they've you know, done to me or said to me. And, and Eucharist reminds us that peace is possible. God gives the world life through the breaking of Christ's body and the pouring of Christ's blood. And maybe part of making peace is the realization that what's interesting is, so we call it the good gift. And the good gift is the broken body of Christ. But in Corinthians, Paul flips it on its head and says, well, actually, not only is this Christ's body, but you are Christ's body. That we are the body of Christ. And is it possible that when we take communion every week, it's a reminder to us that we are actually a living Eucharist? that we are supposed to be a good gift given to the world. Because peace has been made in a world where it seems like peace is impossible. And our responsibility is to take the gift that's been given to us and to live it in such a way that people see it and believe it. And that just as Christ was poured out, maybe we're supposed to be poured out. Or maybe it's just some juice in a cracker. I don't know. So why do we do it? Well, the first reason I think that we should do it is to commemorate. To commemorate what Christ has done for us. To commemorate the hope that we have because of him. To commemorate the pain that he went through on our behalf. 
the things that no one else would sign up for, Jesus did for you and for me. The second reason we take communion is to anticipate. It's not always going to be like this. And so it's like a forward thinking. Did you you notice what Jesus said after he gave it to the disciples? He says, you will not take this meal again with me until when? Until we're with my father. And so it's also an anticipation of what is to come. Did you notice that when Jesus talks about the end... We want to talk about like all kinds of like burning things and the devil and all this type of stuff. But did you notice that when Jesus talks about the end, he says it's like a wedding feast. It's like a banquet. It's like a group of people that get together and break bread and drink wine. So we anticipate that. And then lastly, maybe the reason we take it is not only to commemorate, maybe not only to anticipate, but also to participate. We are part of the good gift given to the world to offer hope and light. Maybe part of the reason that we take it every week is to remind ourselves that we ourselves maybe have to be poured out this week. That we ourselves may have to at some point be broken to bring peace and hope and to destroy the walls of hostility and death in this world. We're going to end the service a little different today. And so what we're going to do is here in a second, the band's going to come up and I'm going to pray for us, kind of end the service like normal. And then the band's going to sing a song. And as they sing the song, uh, it's it's a great song. We invite you, if you haven't, to grab some communion. I don't care what your status is right now with you and Jesus or whatever. If you're trying to figure all that out, that's fine. But just take a moment, think about it. And I'm going to come back up and I'm going to lead us in a meditation. And then we're going to take it together to remind ourselves of the commonality, to remind ourselves of the good gift that is Jesus. Let's pray.